Hello, and welcome to episode 202 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here once again, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Good to be back in front of a microphone and not my phone in a park somewhere. You're not under a waterfall at the moment. I don't think so. But, you know, New York apartments. <laughs> you're, you're not the aware of any waterfalls. That's a fair point here. Well, I mean, you picked a good week to go on vacation. Nothing really happened in the aviation world. Oh, no, no. We, we didn't have anything interrupting what I was trying to do, you know, trying to get away from it all. There wasn't like a, a rogue spy balloon or like a near catastrophe or a crash or another near catastrophe or, you know, none of that. It was all none good. of that happened. Yeah. Every flight was on time and good times were had. Excellent. Well, I'm glad yep. you're back because as it turns out, all of that did in fact happen and we have a ton to talk about. And more and more. We didn't even get we to everything. We have so much. Oh, we have so much to talk about. Later on where in the show, we even we're going to be doing- <laughs> I'll tell you where we're going to be and we're going to begin later in the show because we're going to talk later with our own Gabriel Lee, who's going to join us to answer some listener mail that one listener sent in. So we're going to do that later in the show. But we begin high in the stratosphere on a Chinese spy balloon. Wow. I did not ever think that particular string of words would be something we cobble together here on this podcast. But yeah. I've given up on even pretending to figure out where we're going with this podcast. (laughs) Apparently, we have to talk about high altitude, probably spy balloons. So that's fun. The most I know about this right now is you can, in fact, not track a Chinese spy balloon here on Flight Radar. 24 because they don't have ADSB. Did you know that, Ian, before this week? I did know that before this week, but my goal last week was educating the public that that was the case. And I think and we did a you pretty did good a job. quite a good job. Yeah. It was uh, kind of funny because I, I was, again, trying to do the vacation thing, ignoring this. And I see the screenshot of you calling one of the balloons. I guess I always associate them with the alphabet loon balloons that always said H-ball, but clicking on it and seeing the, the not-so-Easter egg of saying, no, this is not a Chinese spy balloon was very fun. Yeah. So let's back up and talk about what happened in case Oh, everyone already knows what happened already. Come on. Didn't know what happened. So what happened was is, is a stratospheric balloon that the United States government identified as originating in China, floated over the Aleutian Islands, and then went over into Canada and came back into the lower 48 United States over northern Idaho, moved through Montana, and moved southeast, making its way from the northwest of the country down to the southeast, coming through South Carolina and moving off the coast. The United States Air Force ended up shooting it down using an F-22, and the United States Navy is currently recovering it off the coast of South Carolina, and they're going to poke, prod, and do whatever they do to figure out what that particular piece of equipment's all about. But where we come in is there just so happened to be another high-altitude stratospheric helium balloon in roughly the same location last week as where the Chinese balloon was. And so the balloon launched by Raven Aerostar, which is a company that focuses on all sorts of high altitude research projects and launches balloons on a regular basis. There's one up right now as we speak. They had launched a balloon 
weeks ago from their facility in New Mexico. And it was floating across the southern United States. And by the time the two balloon stories converged, the Raven Aerostar balloon was over Alabama. And it became at various points the number one or number three or number two most tracked flight on Flight Radar 24 as we kind of learned more about what was happening. So people started saying, well, I can track the, you know, the balloon on Flight Radar 24. And the answer is no, you can track a balloon. You can track this balloon, but that's not the, the Chinese balloon. So as Jason mentioned, we updated our database to inform people clicking on the balloon that this was not in fact the Chinese spy balloon floating over the United States. What's interesting though is that you could kind of follow where the Chinese balloon was based on US military flights that were broadcasting ADSB. There were a number of US military aircraft including uh, signals intelligence aircraft and air-to-air refuelers that were orbiting around areas that we knew the balloon to be traveling through because people were sitting on the ground with with telescope cameras filming it and watching it float by. These things don't move fast. I mean, they move forward at whatever the wind speed is up in the stratosphere in 10 to 30 knots, maybe. I mean, there's one actually up right now. Yeah, there's one right now that launched, looks like north of Sioux Falls, is currently traveling at a leisurely pace of four. Oh, oh, we're up to six knot ground speed now. uh, It's somewhere southwest of Minneapolis, which is, I think, one of the uh, Chinese one actually went right through this area too. So these do not make much progress. It's at 66,100 feet. Oh, it slowed down to three knots. So it's not making much forward progress. But yeah, these. You can't really navigate them. They go where the wind takes them. And in this case, it took quite the tour over the US. And it created a bit of a air traffic situation once it eventually wandered or meandered its way out off the East Coast over the Atlantic Ocean, where eventually the US military, or I guess in this case, probably straight from the top with uh, President Biden, decided we're going to shoot it down. So we're going to need a couple hundred nautical miles in any direction to make sure that when we do shoot it down, it doesn't come down on anyone's head. Yeah. And they did that. They cleared a bunch of airspace off the coast of South Carolina. Well, first, North they Carolina. shut down a couple airports as well. I think Hilton Head and two other airports in the Carolinas were actually shut down for quite a number of hours because they were in the airspace that I guess yeah. they expected this could have landed. But a lot of oceanic routes, so between, let's say, Florida or Atlanta and the Northeast US, were closed down and flights had to reroute around. It wasn't that big a deal and it was only for a couple of hours, but it was the thing you usually see for something more like a rocket launch. Yeah. Yeah. It was well, you know, there a was very a rocket, interesting. Right? There was a rocket launch here. It was a missile. Yeah, so a missile kind launch. Of the same yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah. I mean, you really don't want, because that's the other thing. And I was thinking about this earlier when people were talking about, you know, when, and there was a, a lot of discussion in the mentions. Again, never read the mentions, but unfortunately, that's. Part of my job is to read the mentions. And so a huge part of the discussion for the better part of a week was shoot it down now, shoot it down now, shoot it down now. And then the counter argument was, well, what if it falls on your house? And it wasn't until we watched them shoot it down, which is crazy in and of itself that you can have a camera that's powerful enough to find a balloon up at 60,000 feet and watch in real time as well an aircraft offshore. fires a missile. As well. well offshore, fires a missile 
at a balloon, hits it, and bops it, and it falls to the ground. But bops it? Did you just say the missile bopped? Pops it. The pops balloon? It. Oh, pops okay. It. Pops it. That, that's much better. Okay. Not bops it. But, but we can go with that. Yes, the, the missile yeah, bopped yeah, yeah. it. But that got me thinking. It was like, well, the real issue, I mean, at least thinking about it for me after seeing that was not with the balloon fall. Because, I mean, there's that to think about. But also, that missile went pretty much straight through the superstructure of the balloon and just kept going. Yeah, there was no explosion or fireball or anything. No. It, it, it just that it missile going. went somewhere. It, it is almost certainly the ocean right now. So the closure of the airspace seems prudent and a yes. wise decision. And, and so my thought was like, if you do that over land, where does that missile go? And so I Probably think I think that was one of the big concerns and yep. yeah, well, and why you don't you know why you don't shoot it over land. But totally but interesting to, to see what comes out of that decision. Yeah, I don't think we'll be seeing any more of these balloons over at least of the the Chinese spy variant anytime soon. But like we said earlier, there are plenty of these. There are always some of these high altitude balloons somewhere in the world. I guess less so now that Google gave up on yeah on the whatever project they were loop. doing with that. But there's always one somewhere. So in between the excitement of discovering the balloon floating over the US and the excitement of shooting it down off the coast, this event happened. And the more we learn about what happened over the weekend in Austin, the worse it gets. So early morning on, let's see, it was this Saturday morning, the... Austin Airport was fogged in, very low visibility, freezing fog. At the time of this incident, the visibility had deteriorated from a quarter mile to an eighth of the mile. The airport was using runway 18 left, which is a category three ILS runway, important to note here. And they were arriving and departing on that runway, also important to note here. What happened was a FedEx 767 was inbound on an ILS Category 3 approach to runway 18 left. They were cleared to land, and then the tower cleared a Southwest Airlines 737 to depart the same runway. Which, to clarify, is not an unusual thing. It is a completely common occurrence for a departure to be cleared for takeoff after or during the same period when an arrival or even multiple arrivals are cleared to land on the same runway. That is a constant thing at JFK as well, that a flight will be cleared for takeoff and they'll say traffic on one and three mile final, no delay, takeoff, three one left or something like that. So that in and of itself is not unusual. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the bad part. At least in the US, I'll say. Fair, fair. We have not gotten to the bad part yet. The 767 was approximately three miles from the runway when the Southwest 737 was cleared for takeoff. The Southwest 737 did not take off right away. They reached the runway and didn't depart with expediency. And that allowed the 767 to basically fly on top of the 737. We've got the data and some visuals on the blog, and we'll put those in the show notes so that you can kind of follow along with what we're talking about. But the FedEx 767 flew over the Southwest 737. They both flew a departure from that runway with the Southwest flight 
continuing its normal departure, flying to Cancun. And the 767 performed a missed approach and came back around and landed back in Austin. The data that we have from the ADS-B receivers, and, and we pulled the granular data, which gives us a much higher frequency than what's displayed on the site that we've talked about in the past, that data combined with the statements from NTSB Chairperson Jennifer Hominy paints a very, very, very dark picture of what could have happened if the FedEx 767 didn't go around when it did. Yeah. Nothing, nothing particularly good happened here. And we will say that it's important to note that the FedEx 767 went around not because air traffic control told them to, which is the big problem here. They went around on their own volition. They determined, thankfully, it basically the last available moment that Southwest was still on the runway and they called for a go around on their own. And that might be partially, we'll have to wait again for the investigation to determine this, but it might be because of the extra level of technology that FedEx actually has on board these 767s where, Ian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they have thermal imaging cameras on these aircraft. So it's called the Enhanced Vision Flight System. And it basically... It's a package of sensors that allows the pilots to have a much better view when there's low visibility. So it provides a heads up view much, much better than visual flight in poor visibility because cargo pilots are often flying in hours of poor visibility at night and they gotta get there. They got a schedule to keep. And so FedEx has long invested in this enhanced vision system and they have installed it across their fleet. And as Jason mentioned, it obviously will wait for the the report to come out, but I wouldn't bet against that playing a critical role in what happened here and the outcome being what it was versus what it could have been. Yeah. Had this been, and I don't think this is a stretch to say it, had this been literally almost any other airline in the world other than FedEx or possibly UPS, this could have been a very different, much more tragic story. As far as I know, there are no passenger airlines in the world that have this technology. This is pretty much a FedEx and I believe UPS feature, and that's it, at least on the commercial side. Yeah. One thing we won't know is what the pilots were saying during all of this, because uh, both aircraft cockpit voice recorders were overwritten. Yes. Because they were only great. two hours. Not great. Southwest is- flew from Austin to Cancun an hour and 54 minutes. They landed. They turned off the plane. They didn't pull the CVR. They could have, but they didn't. And then they flew back and everything was overwritten. FedEx, they didn't pull the CVR. They kept going about their day. But yeah, this is the second major near accident that we've had in the last, I guess, two months at this point, where there has been a critical mistake of some sort and the cockpit voice recorders are unavailable because of the artificially imposed limitations on the recording duration, which at this point is two hours, which is just simply not enough. Basically, that means if the flight continues, you're not going to get that data unless the breaker is pulled in the flight deck, which I'm told is an actual uh, thing that the pilot can do. If they want to preserve the flight recorder or the cockpit voice recorder, they can pull that breaker and put it in the maintenance log to preserve that data so it does not get overwritten. But it is being discussed how after the Air Canada incident in SFO probably 
six or seven years ago at this point that procedures were put in place to at the FAA to make sure that the voice recorder or the data recorders are preserved after a near incident like this and, and procedures just aren't being followed or the system isn't working as intended. And yeah, again, yet again, we have lost the CVR, which could have told us some pretty valuable information. And we talked about this when we had Sean Payne on to talk about the NTSB's wish list. And one of the big things that on the NTSB's wish list is a 25-hour voice recorder. The two-hour limit is, as you mentioned, artificial. It's the technology exists to have much, much, much more data. It just hasn't been mandated by the FAA. And also on the NTSB wish list that we really focused on were the visual recorders. And in this particular instance, having that visual record would certainly provide much, much more information to the investigators than they're going to have. Yeah. And as John Astrower tweeted, well, Twitter was still a working thing, hopefully working again by the time you listen to this. But as John Ostrauer said, both of these incidents are really signs of an overstressed aviation system between pilots being overworked and air traffic controllers being understaffed. The system is showing cracks. It's showing signs that things are not working. And we have two incidents at major high-tech U.S. airports that basically the only reason there wasn't a catastrophe was nearly pure luck in both instances, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I would love for this to stop happening. Yeah. That, that would be, be great. great. Yeah. Both of these were extremely close in the JFK incident. Thankfully, the analog radio frequency wasn't blocked and air traffic control was able to say, hey, stop your takeoff roll, Delta. And in this case, it seems like the FedEx pilots actually radioed on the tower frequency for Southwest to stop their takeoff roll. Unfortunately, that did not happen, and FedEx was able to break off their approach and gain altitude faster than Southwest was gaining altitude. But both yeah. of these really seem to hinge on luck. In FedEx's case, maybe there was a bit of technology at play that they were able to actually physically see the Southwest aircraft on the roll. If that system was indeed enabled and, and providing them with additional information, again, we'll have to see. But damn, both of these incidents were super close when they should never be, never even be a thing that's possible. But here we are. Well, let's continue in the theme of good luck because a Colson 737-300 Fireliner crashed this week in Western Australia fighting bushfires and both pilots walked away. Wow. That's not usually how that story ends, especially with no. these fire bombers. Usually the tragic result is they flew into the side of a mountain because the work that they're doing is so intense that you know usually they're flying low altitude. They pull up at the last second before a ridge or a steep hill. So you typically don't survive that. But to hear that they just walked away is good for that crew. Yeah, I think the fortunate thing in this particular case is that they were fighting a bushfire in very flat terrain. And so whatever happened to to put the aircraft on the ground, the aircraft slid for quite a while and then caught fire and there is no more aircraft. But in, in X737 300 from Southwest too. Yeah, uh former Southwest 737 300. They were able to walk away. They were medevaced to the hospital and checked out and released the same day. 
That's pretty outstanding. Yeah, that's, that's hey, we, outstanding. we've seen a couple of these recently with old as hell 737. So we have this Colson fire bomber. There was what was it? The Hawaiian 73 freighter that ditched the uh, Trans Air. The Trans Air. Yep. They they survived that and just kind of waited to get picked up. So that's I don't know these old 73s. I guess they're built like tanks. And then in. Qatar, this one, we're late to report on it because it, it went unnoticed for quite some time. Which is but, part of the problem. Yes. On the 10th of January, a Qatar 787 was departing Doha for Copenhagen. And as it climbed out from Doha, it stopped climbing and in fact and then- descended. Yeah. And descend it. So the the top of the, I guess, initial climb was 1,850 feet. And then over the next 28 seconds, they descended back down to 800 feet before they and managed to exceed the aircraft. The speed limitations of the configuration of the aircraft at the time. So they were not a great shape. Yeah. So they recovered the aircraft and then continued on to Copenhagen like nothing happened. Specifically, the pilot not flying at the time recovered the aircraft. So it kind of seems like had the aircraft stayed under control of the uh, pilot flying at the time, it would have been, yet again, a very different story. And and apparently here, what was going on was that this was a departure over the water at night, very difficult to ascertain as a pilot. Basically, your your relation to time and space and, and pure darkness, and they were flying manually. They were not yet... On autopilot, they did not have the flight director set, so they were flying completely manually. And for whatever reason, the automation for that aircraft was not yet configured on that departure. And the the pilot flying just lost situational awareness, was not paying attention to their instruments. Hopefully, we imagine at some point there was a warning issued by the aircraft, either terrain warning or any sort of alert that they were losing altitude and and rapidly approaching terrain, or in this case, water, which is the same alert, but really not good. And yet another case where we will not have the recorders because unfortunately they did not report this issue, this incident to the company. So those recorders are are long since overwritten. Yeah. So they... Qatar Airways has started an internal investigation. They've informed Qatari regulators. So we'll see what happens there if there's a formal investigation by the their safety bureau. But it sounds like we're not going to, to get much out of this one. Very reminiscent of the Emirates 777 departure from Dubai a couple of years ago at this point, where they, they took off from Dubai and failed to recognize that they weren't climbing at all and nearly flew into buildings because they they were just basically flying level on departure. Very, very startlingly similar incident to that. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mentioned, I'm just just trying to to remember the particulars of that. But yeah, we'll we'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. Once we remember which episode that was. Yeah. Well, the beauty of being able to search for things on a computer, but we'll include that in the link as well. And then finally, as far as accident and incident investigations go, we have an update on the Yeti Airlines ATR-72 crash that occurred last month when the aircraft was on approach to Bokhara. Investigators, and this is uh, reporting from Flight Global, the investigators are now know that both propellers were in transition to a feather state before 
the aircraft crash. And so investigators are trying to figure out why. Nepalese investigators, and quoting Flight Global here, Nepalese investigators have received analytical support from Singapore's Transportation Safety Investigation Bureau. And they're also receiving assistance from the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, uh, French and Canadian investigators. So they're trying to figure out why the propellers were feathered, which, which basically reduces power. Well, it doesn't reduce power. It's no power and usually used when there's an engine failure to help the aircraft glide as far as it can. Right. What that does is it, it physically manipulates the propeller blades so that it reduces drag. So if you do have an engine failure, you don't want those propellers basically just spinning out there. You can feather them and it physically manipulates them so it reduces the drag on those propellers that are now not powered. And to have both propellers feathered at the same time, that just raises all sorts of questions and don't jump to any conclusions, but was there a dual engine flame out leading them to feather both engines? Could be, possibly, we don't know, but there's really no scenario where you would do that if your engines are working properly. So we'll, we'll have to wait for the investigation to release a preliminary report because that's an interesting bit of news. Yeah. I mean, in my head, I'm thinking about previous ATR incidents. Are you thinking about a Taiwanese one, perhaps? That's the first one I'm thinking of, yeah, where you have an issue with an engine and then actions upon the incorrect engine. Certainly something to consider, but the investigators say they're looking into technical and human aspects to understand the circumstances. So they're looking at everything. We'll eventually know more, but they caution, as always, that these things take time and we're not going to get much anytime soon. You know what takes a lot of time too? What's that? Developing a new aircraft, a new clean sheet aircraft. Have you ever tried that yourself? I mean, I've built a couple paper airplanes in my lifetime. Yeah, me too, but that's about the extent. But Mitsubishi Heavy Industries tried to break into the, I guess, what you would call the regional jet space not too long ago, debuting the Mitsubishi, I guess what we call it now, space jet. At one point, it was called the Mitsubishi regional jet, the MRJ. The program was put on hold, I think it was in 2020, maybe 2021. And they they said, we're going to reassess the situation and come back. And they did indeed last week come back and say, we're done here. You went so far as to even visit Japan and their offices at some point, didn't I you? I did at the airport in Nagoya. I mean, I wasn't rooting on this aircraft. It, it definitely had you know, more than its fair share of problems. But yeah, I, I did visit them out in Nagoya and, and hear their pitch on the aircraft. And it, it never really made sense. The cabin was a very dated design since it was specked out so very long ago. Their market assumptions, at least for the the smaller variant of the MRJ, I believe, was, was flawed. The whole business proposition was wrong. They, they were counting on the US major airlines to have a modified scope clause to be able to even operate this aircraft because it was just too heavy. That was never <laughs> going <laughs> that, that to happen. That was never going to happen. It was never, never, going, ever to happen. going to happen. So even before this aircraft was going to take to the skies, they needed a new variant of a smaller lighter weight variant of the MRJ, which that doesn't make any sense. It's not going to happen. Now we know for sure Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is pulling the plug on its commercial aviation sector, I guess. We will not have a few hundred 
Mitsubishi regional jets delivered to what was it, SkyWest or something? They are Eastern Airlines version four point Republic. Republic. There, there were a lot of random orders for this aircraft. Of course, some of the Japanese airlines. I think there was even a, an ANA painted aircraft at one point. We will never be seeing, at least anytime soon, a Mitsubishi regional jet come to fruition. Not going to happen. So sorry, Space Jet. So if you have Space Jet stuff, hang on to it, I guess. Damn, I don't have any stuff. Oh, well, I don't know what to tell you. On the other hand, some interesting and exciting news. The FAA has granted Universal Hydrogen a special airworthiness certificate so that they can begin flight testing shortly their Dash 8300 that is going to be powered entirely on hydrogen. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a really cool thing that I'm super excited to see happen. Their design is interesting because it's a direct transfer of power of hydrogen. It's it's not hydrogen into batteries, into kind of hydrogen electric engines. It's full hydrogen all the way. So that's an interesting thing because it, it saves a lot of weight in the design of the aircraft. So it'll be really cool to see they've got some, some B-roll of the aircraft taxiing around Moses Lake. So look for that one in hopefully the coming weeks, I think, is the plan. Didn't we just talk about another hydrogen-powered aircraft last week? This is becoming, we talked about, or two we talked about Zero Avia. Yeah, yeah so we talked about Zero Avia. Quite an active space. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, things are moving. So Universal Hydrogen's Dash 8 is registered November 330-ECHO-NOVEMBER, N330-EN. So add that to your registration alerts and look for that in the next couple weeks. Let's take a break and go to some listener mail. We got an interesting question, and it just so happens we have an expert on all things Air Greenland on staff. So let's take a quick break and we'll go to Gabe for a quick segment on some interesting questions about Air Greenland. We'll be right back. And we're back now with our very own Gabriel Lee, who has been on, I think, maybe more Air Greenland flights than some Air Greenland pilots at this point. He spent time on their Dash 8s. He spent time in their helicopters. He spent time on their A330-200. And most recently, he was on the delivery flight on their A330-800neo. And that's why he's joining us today. Gabe, thanks so much for coming on the show and answering some reader mail. Yeah, no problem. I'm always happy to talk about Air Greenland because for some reason I always think about Air Greenland. So, you know, anytime. It works out. So we had a reader question from a Boeing pilot, but this is about Airbus aircraft. He writes, Air Greenland's new A330-800 was supposed to replace their ancient A330-200, but lately both have been operating regularly to various destinations. And I wondered why. Have they seen the flexibility of having two wide bodies in the fleet and decided to keep the old one, or have they simply just not transitioned over to the A330neo quite yet? I'm keen to hear more. So Gabe, what is the answer? Well, the short answer is that it's it's part of the transition. It's part of the transition that they had planned. And one reason for that is that they decided to install Wi-Fi on the A330neo, the one they call Tukak, and that's happening right now. So it also gave them an opportunity to, you know, break in the new aircraft, get to know it. You know, the old one, which they call Norsec, they know it so well at this point. So it was useful, I think, as well as the sort of, you know, the interim time where they were going to install the Wi-Fi. It was useful to have two of them flying so that anything that might come up, and of course, new aircraft do have teething issues now and then. 
So I would say that they have enjoyed, you know, having the option of running extra charters or whatever the case may be, having two A330s. But until the new runways open in Greenland in 2024, it's definitely not part of their strategy to have two wide-body aircraft, and they wouldn't do it even if they could keep the older A330 for longer. As it stands, they can't keep it for longer because it needs its engines overhauled or replaced very soon. So it's going to get sold for parts. So the A330-200 is definitely on the way out, but it sounds like there's the option in the next few years to see additional wide-body aircraft coming to Air Greenland. I mean, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see additional aircraft. I think maybe Air Greenland is going to treat it really cautiously in terms of adding any new wide bodies. But my take, and, you know, they say it's not currently in the plans to add any more aircraft, full stop. But, of course, these new runways are going to open in 2024. They're looking to add new routes, maybe to North America. At that point, you're going to need additional aircraft. Now, one way they might achieve that without having to sort of commit to having an extra plane in the fleet is by wet leasing, bringing on additional aircraft, which is something they've done in the past. When the, their one A330 needed to go in for maintenance, they contract out the flying to someone else. And in fact, in the coming months, they are running some narrowbody flights using a jet time aircraft. I asked them about this on some routes such as Bilund to Kangalusuak, things like that. So they're in a way already going to be incorporating a second aircraft just temporarily. So I think they're testing the waters now. And I would say definitely there are, you know, backroom talks going on about, you know, what we do in terms of additional aircraft once those new runways are open. Because if all goes as planned, they're going to need more for sure. Gabe, thanks so much for coming on and answering the reader mail. If anybody else has reader mail questions for Gabe about Air Greenland or not, just about anything, write to us at podcast at fr24.com and we're always happy to answer those. Gabe, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. Welcome back. So Jason, if you're in the market for parts from an A330-200, Air Greenland's will be available soon. So maybe you could make some keychains. I'm only in the market for used Mitsubishi space jet parts right now. <laughs> Plenty of that to go around. You could probably even get the tooling too and build probably. one yourself. So good news, I guess, if you're British Airways in the sense that they finally found a code share partner down in South Africa after the demise of their franchise partner, Comair, they are going to code share with Airlink on their flights. I don't think, at least for now, we're going to see any Airlink aircraft painted in the British Airways livery. Yeah, I believe there is only one remaining British Airways franchise airline, and I think that's Sun Air that does some really oddball routing out in the, the UK, I think. But yeah, we're definitely not going to see a, uh, a slightly modified, odd-looking BA livery in South Africa anytime soon. That's a bummer. This is an interesting one. So the bankruptcy administrator of Flybe, which declared bankruptcy last week, they want a temporary license to operate, not so that they can operate, but so that they can have possible chance to operate once again. Why? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't work. I, it, they, they keep trying, which is nice, but it, it's, it's just whatever they're doing, it's not working. At some point, you know, you just have to let it go. You know, so Flybe's done. Flyer is done. They couldn't make it work in, in Norway. Flybe, I don't know why they want to try it again, but good for them. We'll see how that goes. Jason. Yes. I don't understand what's happening here. 
Is there any particular topic that you don't understand? Please explain to me why Qatar Airways is suing American Airlines. Okay. Well, Qatar is very mad at American and not for any reason you might think. And this, this one comes from the prolific tweeter while Twitter is working, ex-John NYC. There is a lawsuit filed, I believe, in New York by Qatar against American Airlines that apparently way back on July 21st, 2019, a... Qatar 777-300ER-A7BEK was being towed up to a gate at JFK T8, which American leases from the Port Authority, but it is their terminal. They operate that terminal and they operate the jet bridges. But apparently there was a jet bridge malfunction of some sort. And due to some, let's say, miscommunication and what Qatar is saying, Americans' grossly negligent handling of passenger boarding bridge at gate eight, there was damage to the aircraft. And Qatar is seeking an amount of, get ready for this, $11,718,090.30 to be exact. So unfortunately, the story goes, and we'll, we'll post a link to the filing here, that Qatar had pulled up to the gate and there was some issues with the jet bridge, as there always is these things are just the worst. They were able to get the, the plane off the gate, towed away somewhere because the, the uh, departing flight was much later. A Qantas flight actually used the gate later. Again, it broke. They were able to get the plane off the gate. And when it came time to tow that Qatar aircraft back to gate eight, it was being worked on. And nobody at any point told the Qatar, I guess the people who were towing that aircraft back to, to uh, gate eight, that the jet bridge wasn't in the correct place and it was broken. And Qatar says they were grossly negligent and caused exactly $11,718,090.30 worth of damages to that aircraft. When those precise figures are listed, I always want to know how they got there. Unfortunately, I, I don't think there's a breakdown. Ah, It happened years ago, so they must know exactly how much it took in, in, sure, in, sure. in personnel hours and downtime for the aircraft and parts, but uh, apparently that's exactly how much to the penny it cost to fix a triple seven. To the penny that had an issue with these godforsaken jet bridges, which are just the worst. They are the worst, as anyone who's followed my travels knows. The hardest fifteen the feet worst. in uh, the aviation uh, industry. It truly is. Also angry this week are Spirit Airlines. They continue to be upset with Pratt and Whitney and the reliability of the geared turbofan engines on their newer aircraft which have, according to, to Spirit, reduced their – or increased their unit costs as and decreased their, their yields. They are not happy. But this is not unique to Spirit and it's one of those things that you know the teething issues of new aircraft and new engine programs continue to kind of extend as we've seen, especially with the GTF. So Spirit being the most vocal. Getting to the point where I'm not sure that we can call these aircraft new anymore, though. The, this engine new, the 320neo has been flying for like nearly 10 years now at this point. So I'm not, I'm not sure we can yeah, okay. call it new. Yeah. So that's probably why Spirit is probably so pissed off. They are not a launch customer. This is not a bleeding edge technology. Spirit's also having all sorts of issues on its own. They, they can't turn a profit. So good luck with that, JetBlue. Yeah, they, they are. <laughs> Not happy, but I, understandable. At this point, you shouldn't be seeing teething issues with this engine. It is not a new engine. 
it is the newest engine. It is the new engine option, but it's no longer new. At what point does the Neo just become the CO and the CO become the the OEO? The OEO? I guess you'll have to retire every 320 CO in operation before you can do that. And and it might take a while <sighs> if your name is Delta. It might take a while. <laughs> All right. We close the show with interesting safety issue. One that the FAA is trying to fine United Airlines $1.15 million for. All right. How did they come up with that number? Again, just like uh, the Qatar American thing, $1.15 million. I'm sure there's a calculation yes. somewhere. I'm sure there's some sort of formula. So in 2018, United operates both the 777 and the 787. And in 2018, the airline standardized their pre-flight checklists for the 777 and 787. On the 787, there is a fire system warning check that is performed by the flight computers. On the 777, that check is supposed to be performed by the pilots. They removed it from the 777 checklist because in the process of standardizing everything, it seems like they forgot the airplanes are different. United says that the FAA looked at this and said it was fine. The FAA says, no, it was not fine. And you didn't make sure that the airplanes were ready to fly. And so we're going to fine you. Man, I hope they're able to dig up those emails. That's a big fine. Once the FAA noted this information to United, United updated the pre-flight checks and changed its procedures. So yeah, that didn't work out very well. But a $1 million fine is not the end of the world. Yeah. This is more of a, hey, let's read our emails better. Yeah. I, I just don't want to be the, the person at United who looks through their Outlook outbox and says, oh, no, that email <laughs> didn't. I forgot to hit send. It happens. But that's the – obviously, you want safety checks to, to be – thorough and complete. So, And of course, United says at no time was the, were the aircraft actually unsafe. It was just a checklist item that was not, not completed in the same way that it, it previously had been. But safety first. Safety, safety, safety first. As we saw at the top of the show, things go awry when safety is not first. So on that note, let's call this episode 202 of AvTalk and leave it there. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>